Stand clear of the closing doors, please. This is the Kaleidocast. Hello. Great to have you on board the Kaleidocast. Booty potties. Poo-poo the what? For someone with a PhD, you're not very bright, are you? Pooty, like foodie, but for podcasts. And potty is what we are. Allison and Veronica, pooty potties. Every time you make these stupid jokes, I have to restart the recording. Uh-uh. You said if I doubled our following, then I could pitch a new name for our podcast every episode. Wait. Those 500 new subscribers aren't bots? They're real? Did you bribe your friends with eclairs? No, no, no. I got us an intern. Terry, you can come out of the closet now. They did some influencer magic, hyped my TikToks or something. Hi. I didn't mean hire the first guy you see off the... Wait, isn't he the pizza delivery guy from yesterday? Pizza delivery is not their calling. They could be the next Ira Glass or Sarah Koenig. Did you even ask their pronoun preference? It's okay. I accept all pronouns. Fine. I'll interview this non-binary guy. Actually, I signed the contract already. You what? Don't worry. The contract says we're not liable for any injuries on the job, including from that crazy vegan podcaster down the hall. God damn it. You know what I need? Coffee. Terry, make me coffee, or you're fired. As you wish, host Mayfly. You know the coffee machine's broken. That's why I asked him to make coffee. Them! What do you have against Terry? It's not about Terry. You're a co-producer, Veronica. That means we make executive decisions together. It is about Terry. You didn't tip them yesterday. Don't you think it's creepy that they- Your coffee's ready. Listeners, Terry has created a foam art genie on Allison's latte. Wait, I'm taking a picture for our Instagram. Whoa. Did Terry work as a barista, too? I'm telling you, Terry is multi-talented. In the time it took you to get your PhD, they worked 49 different jobs. We're getting sidetracked. Now that I've had my coffee, we're actually starting. No interruptions, okay? And edit out that extra stuff later. As you wish. Welcome to the Kaleidocast. Today's story critically examines the motif of having three wishes. Although speculative fiction is itself a vehicle of wish fulfillment, genie stories actually a bastardization of the original gin mythology take this theme to its logical extreme. Even innocuous friends could have twisted consequences say nothing of unbridled desires. Be relatable, Allison. Relatable. Just this morning, I was making avocado toast, and I had to scrap my recording because the avocado was stuck to the peel. Oh, the embarrassment. So... If I had three wishes, my first wish would be to bring an avocado to peak ripeness by touching it. Is that what you would wish for? Hypothetically. I wish you would get lost and start your own podcast so that I could actually hear myself talk. As you wish, host Mayfly. That wasn't... You take that back, Allison. Take that back right now. Just kidding. I'm just kidding, Veronica. Gosh, can't you take a joke? Look, let me talk to you over here. Veronica, I'm telling you. Today I present Gene Genie by Randy Don. Gene Genie by Randy Don. The late Harold Kilkenny Esquire's office door opened with a creak that would have made any haunted house proud. Dolores reached inside to flip the light switch 
but the room remained lit only by thin slices of Brooklyn sunlight streaming through closed blinds. A stale, damp smell made her think the office was sweating. Confidential files have been secured, the email from Dolores' supervisor, Marissa, at Warnaker, Dozier, Fournier, and Teasdale, WD4T, some wags called it in private, had read. Gather up Mr. Kilkenny's personal items for donation in one container. Sort any further paperwork that might require re-examination before shredding. Do not take souvenirs. As if she'd want anything from Harry, that bottom-pinching creep who'd called her girly at least once a day for six years. Harry had died on Wednesday in this very office, collapsed over Edna Meyerwitz's last will and testament. Moments after ambulance workers rolled his body out in a gurney, partners had sent paralegals to swarm the place like vultures at a carcass. What was left was... crap. Handed to the low woman on the ladder to clean up. Happy long weekend Friday to me, thought Dolores sourly. You gotta ask for what you want, Fran, a litigator at the firm, based in a shabby second-floor walk-up on Bay Ridge's lively 3rd Avenue, had told her last week over lunch. They're not gonna hand you a partnership. Dolores had protested about slow and steady winning the race, which made Fran roll her eyes. That's a C-plus student's attitude, Fran had told her. You gotta think like an A-plusser. Do more, better. Do what no one expects you to do. Now, Dolores tugged open the blinds, revealing a mess of papers and an overturned pencil holder on Harry's desk. A mug with the image of a rainbow ending in a pot of gold, half filled with Harry's last sip of joe, rested near one edge. Knickknacks lined his shelves, dust-gathering sentries standing watch before his legal tomes. A whole lot of chazare, as Dolores's beloved babysitter Estelle used to say. She had a good Yiddish word for every occasion, including when she'd gotten her cancer results. Dolores sneezed. I should have worn jeans. This is going to be a dirty business. After nightfall, Dolores sat back in Harry's old swivel chair, having sorted everything into trash, question, and shred piles. All it took was her entire Friday and the loss of her usual end-of-the-week happy-hour meet-up with Fran. Around six, she had considered going home and finishing up on Monday, but heard Fran's voice. That would not be A-plus behavior, Missy. Chewing on a cooling pepperoni slice, Dolores surveyed the wood-paneled office and came to a hard stop. God bless America, she swore. She'd forgotten about Harry's closet. Pushing the door open, she was relieved to find it just a minor coda to the day. A few hangers with spare clothing, a stack of pulp detective novels in a corner, plus a hurricane lamp, tucked away on a high shelf. The lamp was a strange little thing, made of green glass that tapered into a detachable upper half, while the oil holder at the bottom bulged outward, ridged in smooth glass bubbles. Dolores enjoyed the feel of the bumps against her thumb. She tapped it with a nail. The inside sloshed and swirled with paraffin oil. Estelle will love this, she thought. She owed the old woman a visit. The last she checked, her former babysitter's cancer was moving slowly, but inexorably. Suddenly, the liquid bubbled, and she nearly dropped the lamp on the floor. The bubbling increased, as if her hands were making it boil. Smoke began to waft from the top, spilling into the closet, but it didn't smell like burning. She caught notes of damp and metal, Stop standing around, a voice inside barked, and she raced to Harry's desk. Dolores set the thing down and backed through Harry's office door, 
nearly tripping on her own feet. She ducked behind the couch, expecting to hear glass shatter. Ah, came a voice instead. That's nice. A cracking of joints sounded next, and she peered over the couch, through the office door. Hey, lady, said the voice, a sassy casualness in its tone. Over here. Dolores took careful steps to the entryway, mouth partly open. An opaque form gazed at her from Harry's desk, shaped like something between a cartoon ghost and an adult-sized human. Gradually, it began to approximate a person of indeterminate gender. Pudgy legs, arms, and even soft facial features resolved, until at last the changes slowed, and a part-mist, part-smoke figure hovered an inch or so above the desk. The creature was the same color as the hurricane lamp. Stretching its long, greenish arms high, the misty shape cocked its head. Thanks for the breather, it said. Been a long time since anybody let me out. Oh, said Dolores, and burped, tasting oil and cheese. You're... Real, said the mist. Real enough. What year is this, anyhow? She pointed at a desk calendar, one of the few things she hadn't yet packed. Ah, crap, Ola, said the mist, craning to one side to look. Forty-two years? Jeez, time flies. That's how long I've been cooped up in that thing? What country is this, anyhow? New... New York, she stuttered. United States. Right-o. Looks like I didn't travel too far. The creature sat up straight, dangling thick legs over the side of the desk, and beckoned. Come here. Dolores took a few careful steps into the room, still not entirely sure she wasn't dozing behind Harry's desk and having a vivid, pizza-induced dream. So let's cut to the chase, said the creature. I live in the lamp, I come out of the lamp, I give you the wishes, I get all warm and fuzzy from helping, then I gotta go back in the lamp. Bet you already know the story. Everybody knows the story. I must be asleep, she murmured. She needed to wake up. She had to finish Harry's office and go home. Water droplets splattered her face. She blinked at the mist. The gin, if she was being accurate, which had its fingers splayed outward. It had apparently sprayed part of itself on her. Better? the mist asked. Wake you up enough? Sitting up straight, its face was eager and bright. Ready to go? Dolores wiped water droplets from her face with the back of her hand again smelling a metallic dampness. Okay, so she was awake. Okay, so Harry had a gin in his closet in an antique hurricane lamp. Those were facts, and they quickly calmed her overactive imagination. The lawyer in her stepped up to the plate. I don't own this lamp, she said, squinting. Does that matter? The gin squinted back. Don't matter, really. You did the rub, you get the prizes. Come on, then, this is my favorite part, where I get to help. An expression of either delight or avarice spread across the mist's face. Now Dolores did know the stories, but she also knew that in them, every wish came with a sometimes random, often moralizing sucker punch that backfired on the asker. There was always a catch. She began pacing the room. I'm thinking. Couple of ground rules, said the djinn. Kind of figured. No wishing for wishes, that's strictly out of bounds. She nodded, kept pacing. Too bad, but fine. And you can't wish for anything anyone's ever asked before. Now she stopped. Wait, what? No world peace, no cure for cancer, been there, done that. But we don't have world peace or a cure for cancer. We did. There was a three minute and 16 second pause on November 9th, 1989, when everybody was celebrating the Berlin Wall crumbling. 
Pretty much everyone else was asleep. And why not longer than three minutes and 16 seconds? Some gal dropped a rock in a mine in remote West Virginia that landed on a neighbor's head, and that started up a feud that tore the town apart. Could have been anything, but that's what killed it. So whoever wished for world peace didn't ask for lasting world peace. So I could, you could, but you wouldn't specify how lasting, or something else. Trust me on this, go small and personal. The bigger the ask, the harder to sustain the wish. The blocks at the top of the pyramid hold up a lot less than the ones at the bottom, if you get my drift. Like Jenga, she thought. I guess that explains why we don't have a cure for cancer. Did that one way back. Problem is, cancer's a tough nut to crack. There's no one cancer, and it keeps mutating. On top of that, nobody asks right. Think small. Better success rates. And what happens after I make my three wishes? I go back in the lamp. You seem like you're in a hurry to get back there. Do you like being in the lamp? The mist shrugged. It's a living. What I like is being out here and helping. In the lamp, it's a lot of waiting around. I'm good at waiting, but I really like it when a couple of the wishes land right. Not my fault you people don't know how to phrase things. Dolores tapped a foot on the carpet, thinking hard. What would you ask for if you could ask for anything, but had to ask for it right? If ever there was a time for A-plus thinking, this was it. Pulling out her cell phone, she dialed a number. How much time do I have? Much as you want, the gin said. Hey, is that pizza? Morning sun was streaming through the open blinds in Harry's office by the time Dolores finished writing. She flexed a cramped hand and gulped down the rest of her sixth cup of coffee, courtesy of the Keurig machine in the break room. Lack of sleep was making her feel drunk, but she was so wired from caffeine and excitement there was no way she could rest now. Leaning back in Harry's chair, she read through the papers one more time. The gin, whom she named Jean, or Jean, it could decide later which was preferred, in her head, was meandering the hallways, poking into other offices, peering into books, and paging through files. Dolores couldn't tell if the creature was truly interested in the intricacies of modern American law or not. It spent an equal amount of time scoping out the toilets in the supply room, at one point wandering around with eight different colors of post-it notes stuck to its green, semi-corporeal self. Dolores knew she couldn't have done this without Fran's help. That was the call she'd made a few hours ago, ringing up her A-plus friend with a theoretical situation. If you had a gin in front of you who gave you three wishes and you wanted to get them right, what would you do? This is what you ditched our drinks for? Fran had grumped. Just answer, please. You mean like if you ask for immortality, you live forever but wish you could die? That's it, to avoid that kind of scenario. You must be pretty cute, Fran had said. Who's he? The guy who's posing this to you. No guy, Dolores had said, though it wasn't entirely true. Just what would you do? Piece of pie, said Fran. You get legal on that gin's ass. It was what Dolores knew how to do best. Never mind that there was a mystical being wandering the halls of WD4T. Just get practical. Find the legalese. Bind it all up in a nice, tight bow. No loopholes, no catches. But, Fran had added, remember your contracts class. It's got to be beneficial to both parties. There's a promise and a valuable benefit in return. That's what makes it stick. What are you doing for the gin? That was what had taken so long. But somewhere between coffee cups three and four, 
As Dolores stood by the elevator bank thinking, a light had gone off. Also a bing. The elevator had opened randomly behind her, discharging no one. After she'd calmed her heart down, Dolores had run back to the office and started writing. Now she raised her voice. Jean, she called, and eventually the mist came over. Most of the post-its had fallen off, but it wore a blue one across its forehead. That's my name? Why not? It shrugged. I was kind of liking Harry. Harry's taken. Or was taken. You don't want to be Harry. She handed over the handwritten contract. In it, she had outlined three specific wishes. It was ironclad, catch-free, and beneficial to both parties. Here's what I want. You're making these wishes? Officially? Dolores started to nod, but cut herself off. Nope, she said. I'm showing you the wishes. Tell me if they're a go. But I'm not making them yet. The gin shook its head. I can't vet this for you. You make them, you live with the consequences. Well, try, said Dolores. Start with the third one. It's about you. Then see if you feel like vetting the other two. She gazed at the sofa in Harry's office with a yearning she usually reserved for a lover. With the papers out of her hand, sleep was coming down hard. Wake me when you're done. She had barely closed her eyes before the gin was standing over her, holding out a hand. Dolores smiled. We have a deal, said Jean. Nobody called the firm of Warnaker, Dozier, Fournier, and Teasdale WD-4T 40 anymore. They couldn't, not without ignoring its newest name partner, Dolores Aquino, added to the letterhead a year ago. And nobody wanted to, because WTFTNA was no joke. The firm had not lost a case or failed to argue a settlement in its favor for going on 12 months. In large part, that had to do with Dolores and her assistant. This way, Dolores gestured to the firm's newest client, a woman who had lost everything when her Bensonhurst apartment had caught fire two months ago, thanks to her landlords exploiting a loophole that didn't require him to update their smoke detectors. This particular landlord was so powerful, he even had top politicians in his pocket, and Mrs. Nakamura could not afford to beat him down in court. She paused outside her assistant's office and gave Mrs. Nakamura's hand a gentle pat. We'll do our best to make things right, she said, pushing the frosted glass door open. The new office digs of WDFT&A took up an entire retrofitted Park Slope brownstone and were a far cry from their former second-floor Bay Ridge walk-up. Dolores and her client stepped into a bright, airy space. A person wearing a pinstripe vest and trousers appeared to hover behind the desk, a green post-it note resting on their shoulder like a familiar. Morning, Jean, said Dolores. Please meet Mrs. Nakamura. She will explain everything. Ohayu gosaimasu, Nakamura-sama, said Jean. Good morning, Miss Aquino. The genie held up a postcard from Florida. I heard from Estelle. She's feeling better than ever and plays mahjong every day at the pool. Dolores smiled. A year ago, she'd asked for two small, specific things, then reserved the third for the benefit of the giver. By the end of the week, Marissa had surprised everyone by announcing that Harry's now-cleaned-out office was perfect for their new name partner, and early the following week, Estelle had called with a miraculous clean bill of health. The third was more complicated but boiled down to this. Jean would come work in the firm and help out whoever Dolores brought their way, until they grew tired of assisting. I'll be here a while then, Jean had said after reading the contract. 
After a full day outside the lamp, the mist had become indistinguishable from a regular person. Except for the hovering. Jean did like to hover. You'll have to be corporeal, Dolores had insisted. We don't want people knowing you have powers. If people learn you have powers, things get untenable, fast. Trust me, Jean had said. I know about those stories, too. Dolores left Mrs. Nakamura with Jean, knowing things would resolve in unexpected, if positive, ways, and headed back to her office, asking her administrative assistant to summon Fran from down the hall. While waiting for her to arrive, Dolores sat back in Harry's swivel chair, the one thing other than the lamp she'd taken from his old office, thinking about the old butt-pincher, the old Hazare collector, the man whose most valuable object had been hidden away in a closet for who knows how long. Harry could have had it all. Maybe he'd been paralyzed into an action, because he couldn't phrase his wishes right, or maybe he had just wished wrong. She picked up the hurricane lamp, now empty of both fuel and gin, and ran her thumb over those decorative bumps. They soothed her. It reminded her of the very best A-plus decision she had ever made. Fran, she said, brightening as her guests knocked on the door. Without her, Dolores knew she wouldn't have gotten this far, gin or no gin. It was time Fran had her reward. I have good news from the partners. Yeah? Fran asked, sauntering inside. We're getting raises? Better, said Dolores delighted to be the one to tell her they were expanding the name partners by one more. Allow me to grant you a wish. Randy Dawn is a Brooklyn-based entertainment journalist whose debut novel, Tune In Tomorrow, about a fantastical TV reality show, was published in August. She writes about show business for Variety, The Los Angeles Times, Emmy Magazine, and Today.com and is the co-author of Law & Order, The Unofficial Companion. Find out more at randydawn.com. Sally Horrigan is a Brooklyn-based actor and voice artist. She is a graduate of Seton Hall University, where she studied theater performance and communications. In addition to her VO work, she has appeared on stage in several New York City theater festivals and off-Broadway plays, and recently made her on-camera debut in The Jane Doe Murders on Oxygen. When not performing, she enjoys running, cooking, baking, and playing with her tuxedo cat, Billy. Wow, I do wish we had a partner like that. What do you think, Veronica? Veronica? Intern Terry? Come in. You're not Veronica. Being so on. Unlike Veronica, I source all my own ingredients. Oh, you're the one Veronica was talking about. Mr. Val, the host of that, that vegan podcast. Monsieur Val, in the French. Please, accept my apologies. Please, accept my brownies. They're organic and vegan, so you have no excuse. Much more protein than those donuts you get every morning. Mmm. Mmm. funky. I chased down the ingredients myself. Please, come to my test kitchen for dinner. We're always looking for new blood. I, I mean members. I need to finish the podcast. We can share our podcasts in progress. Want an exclusive preview? A hungry night. An almost empty fridge. A dinner guest in 30 minutes. 
What can a vegan chef make out of one sprig of spring onion? One tub of cashew ricotta? <laughs> of course, our fridge is better stocked than that. Uh, I think I'll pass. <sighs> You're just like Veronica. Too absorbed in your ambitions to smell your neighbors. I mean, smell the roses. And meet the neighbors. Me? Like Veronica? No way. I'll just check my calendar here. It's absolutely empty. Veronica might come back, Monsieur Val. Didn't you see? She left with Terry. And please, call me Jean. Jean. What a lovely name. Well, two can play at Veronica's game. I'll start the recording, and then we can go. I present Cold Wind by Nicola Griffith. Cold Wind by Nicola Griffith From the park on Puget Sound, I watched the sun go down on the shortest day of the year. The air lost its lemon glitter, the dancing water dulled to a greasy heave, and the moon, not yet at its height, grew more substantial. Clouds gathered along the horizon, dirty yellow-white and gory at one end, like a broken arctic fox. Snow wasn't in the forecast, but I could smell it. More than snow. If all the clues I'd put together over the years were right, it would happen tonight. I let the weather herd me from the waterfront park into the city, south and east, through the restaurant district and downtown. The streets should have been thronged with last-minute holiday shoppers, but the weather had driven them toward the safety of home. By the time I reached the urban neighborhood of Capitol Hill, the moon was behind an iron lid of cloud, and sleet streaked the dark with pearl. Inside the women's bar, customers were dressed a little better than usual, wool rather than fleece, cashmere blend instead of merino, and all in richer, more celebratory colors. The air was spiced with cinnamon and anticipation. Women looked up when the door opened. They leaned toward one another, faces alight like children waiting for teacher to announce a story, a present, a visit from Santa. The holidays, time out of time. Morkatiden or Modranit, Solstice or Soyal, Yalda or Yule, or the Cold Moon Dance. It doesn't matter what people call the turn of the year. It fills them with a drumbeat of expectancy. Even in cities, a mammalian body can't escape the deep rhythms imposed by the solar cycle and reinforced by myth. Night would end. Light would come. Daylight. Daybreak. Crack of dawn. You can tell a lot about its culture from its metaphors. The world is fragile, breakable, spillable as an egg. People felt it. Beyond the warmth and light cast by the holiday, they sensed predators roaming the dark. It made people long to be with their own kind. Even those who were not usually lonely hungered to belong. I sat by the window, facing the door, and sipped Guinness, black as licorice, and topped with a head like beige meringue. I savored the thrust of rusty fist body through the velvet glove of foam, glad of the low alcohol. Daybreak was a long way off. Three women in front of me were complaining about babysitters. Someone's youngest had chicken pox, and another urged her to throw a holiday pox party so they could get all their children infected at once. After all, wasn't it better for the body to get its immunity naturally, the old-fashioned way? It was one of the most pernicious fallacies common the world over. Old ways are best. But old ways can outlast their usefulness. 
Old ways can live on pointlessly in worlds that have no room for them. I drained my beer and almost from force of habit recorded my interaction with the server when she took my order for a refill. But I wasn't here to work, and besides, it would have given me nothing useful, no information on the meeting of equals. The customer is always a little higher on the food chain, at least on the surface. A woman in the far corner was smiling at me, a woman with the weathered look of a practiced alcoholic. I smiled back. It was the holidays. She brightened. If I brightened in turn, she would wave me over. Let's not be alone at Christmas, she'd say. And I could say anything. It wouldn't matter because drunks forget it all before they reach the bottom of the glass. I could say, I'm so very, very tired of being alone. I ache, I yearn, I hunger for more. But women like her would never be my more. So I shook my head and raised my glass with the inclination of the head that the world over meant, thank you, we're done. I sipped my Guinness again, looked at the sky, the sleet was getting whiter, and checked the time. Not yet. So I tuned them all out and listened to the music, a heartfelt rendition of an old blues piece by a woman with a clearly detectable English accent beneath the delta tones. Perhaps there was a paper in it. In this decade, why do English women sing the blues better than anyone since those who invented it? Music traditions flitted from one place to another, acquiring heft and solidity as different cultures adopted them. Over the years, they became majestic and apparently eternal. They never were. The music, at least, did not make me feel like an outsider. It was an old friend. I let it talk to me, let it in, let the fat, untuned bass drum timed to a slow heartbeat drive the melody into the marrow of my long bones where it hummed like a bee, and the river of music push against the wall of my belly. And they were speaking Korean at a table against the wall, which took me back to the biting cold of the Korean DMZ, the mud on the drinking hole sprinkled with frost, the water buffalo and her calf. The door slammed open, bringing with it a gust of snowy air and a scent older than anything in the city. Every cell in my body leapt. Two women came in laughing. The one in jeans and a down vest seemed taller, though she wasn't. Her cheeks were hectic, brown eyes brilliant, and not only from the cold. Women have lit up that way for thousands of years when they have found someone they want, someone whose belly will lie on theirs heavy and soft and urgent, whose weight they welcome, whose voice thrills them, whose taste, scent, turn of the head makes them thrum with need, ring and sing with it. They laugh. They glow. The other was paler, the red-brown of old ivory stained with tea. Her eyes were brown, too, slanted and wide-set, deep brown, velvet. Snow dappled her hair. She stood by the door, blinking, as people do when they walk from dark into light. My aorta opened wide, and blood gushed through every artery, all my senses gearing up. But I pretended not to see her. I gazed out of the window at the sleet turning to snow, the air clotting with cold, and the pavement softening from black to gray. Reflected in the glass, the women around me were coming alert, spines straightening, cheeks blooming, capillaries opening. She was here. She was real. I'd been right. The woman in the down vest smiled, touched the other on the shoulder, and said something. They moved through the doorway to the pool room and out of sight. I'd been right. 
I relished the realization because soon I wouldn't be able to. Soon my mind would be submerged and I'd be lost in a pole almost as old as the turning of the seasons. I watched the snow come down in streetlight cold as moonlight and for a moment missed the old sodium lamps with their warm yellow glow, their hint of hearth and home and belonging. I pondered her clothes, long dress with a thick drape, long coat of oddly indeterminate color, boots. Those were long, too, not shiny. Brown? Black? I frowned. I couldn't tell. It didn't matter. She was here. It would go as it would. I moved into energy conversation mode, as in the field when watching groups whose habits you know as well as your own name. Reflexes begun, but arrested. Peripheral vision engaged. Around me the bar moved from hot to simmering, and now a new scent undercut the usual wood and hops of microbrews and the holiday cinnamon, the sting of liquor. Someone turned up the music. Two women at different tables, one of the Koreans and a gap-toothed white girl, exchanged glances. One followed the other to the bathroom. The snow fell steadily. Traffic would be snarling the intersections, blocked by buses slid sideways down the hill. Soon those vehicles would be abandoned and the streets utterly empty. The CCTV would be locked with cold. Soon. The foam on the inside of my glass sagged like a curtain swag, then slid to the bottom. I'd drunk it faster than I'd meant. At the table by the wall, a Korean voice was raised. Her girlfriend had taken too long in the bathroom. Because there are two crazy women in there. The bathroom. But as I stood, the world swam and lost focus for a moment then reformed around the doorway from the pool room. She stepped through. Her long coat was fastened to the collar, toggled with horn, not buttoned. It looked beige and cream against the door jamb, but gray-blue in the shadowed folds. Perfect camouflage. She saw me. Her face didn't move, but I knew how it would be when she flung her head back, cried out, clutched my shoulders as she shuddered. I felt her breath against my collarbone as she folded there the brush of her mouth against my skin. She came toward me, stepping around the spilt beer and dropped fries, lifting her feet high, placing them carefully as though she wore tall heels. I watched, unable, unwilling to move. And then she stood before me. I could smell her, woodland, fern, musk, and I wanted to reach, fold her down, stretch her out on the bracken, and feel the pulse flutter at her neck. You were watching me, she said, and her voice sounded hoarse, as though used to a bigger throat. I'm an anthropologist. It's what we do. I've been looking for you for a long time. I didn't think you existed. What's your name? I thought about that. Onsa. She nodded. It meant nothing to her. Her eyes were so dark. She turned up her collar. I'll see you, Ansa, soon, I hope. A cold stream purled through her voice and snow blew across her eyes. Come outside, under the sky with me, they said. I nodded. We both knew I would. She called. Others followed. It's who she was. And then she was gone. I didn't look out of the window. If the stories were true in this way, too, I wouldn't be able to see her. Not yet. I found her victim in the bathroom, the blind spot with no cameras. She wasn't dead. She sat propped on the seat in a stall, jeans around her knees, head against the wall. She grinned at me foolishly. 
can't move, she said. I locked the stall behind me. Does it hurt? Nah. It would. I smelled blood just a little. I bent, looked at her shirt darkening between her breasts. Can you draw a deep breath? She tried. In reality, it was more of a sigh. But she didn't flinch or cough. No broken ribs. I squatted in front of her, elbows on knees, hands dangling comfortably. She just kept smiling, head at that odd angle against the wall. In that position, she couldn't see me. I stood, straightened her head. Then, because it was distracting, I leaned her on my shoulder, lifted and pulled up her jeans. She could fasten them herself later, or not. I squatted again, regarded her. She was still smiling, but it was a faint echo of what it had been, no longer solid. After this, not much would be. There's a legend, I said. More than a dozen legends from all over the world. La Llorona, or Flura. Zana, Yara, Nagkanya. She lures people with sex. Some say she takes your heart. Sometimes literally. But she always takes something. I considered her. She's taken your spirit. My... I waited, but she didn't say any more. Your soul, as good a word as any. You're tired, I should think. Her smile faded like a guttering flame. She might survive. She would never feel alive again. I wasn't sure she could hear me anymore. I leaned forward, unbuttoned her shirt. The bruise was swelling too quickly to be sure, but the shape cut into the broken skin, lovely skin over firm muscle, could have been from a blow by a hoof. What's your name? Maria Jose Flores. Maria, you make me hungry. And she would have with her spirit intact. But not like this. I fastened her back up and stood. Time to go. The city was another world in the snow. Silent. Flakes falling soft as owl feathers. Time out of time. The streets were empty. No traffic in or out. It would last until she was done. I'd traced her through campfire stories, elders' tales, academic papers, psychiatric reports. It's what she did. She had been new in the world when Columbus came, alone. Over the centuries, she had refined her methods until they were ritual. She fed early on the evening of a winter high day or holiday, brought her strength to peak, then chose someone to play with all night. Someone strong. Someone who would last. I had put myself in her path, and she had chosen me, and now I must seek her out. But as I did, as I followed her, she was shadowing me, hurting me. I didn't try to pinpoint her. She was at the height of her powers, luxuriant with Maria Flores. But I knew she was there somewhere, behind the abandoned, snow-shrouded cars, in the doorway, behind the dumpster and the frozen cameras. I felt her on my left, a presence as subtle as atmospheric pressure, turning me north. I knew where she wanted me to go. So I padded through the muffled white dream downtown had become, pacing my shadow along the old brick and concrete walls of back streets and alleys toward the edge of the city, where land met sea. Alleys widened to open space, and the sky glimmered with reflected water light. The land began to climb and undulate. Under the snow, pavement softened to grass, and then alternating gravel path and turf on dirt layered on concrete. A paved switchback over a road, the sculpture park overlooking the sound. 
Before I reached the brow of the hill, I stopped and listened. Silent. So profound I heard the snow falling, settling with a crystalline hiss, bright and sharp as stars. I closed my eyes, opened my mouth a little, breathed and tongued the air to the roof of my mouth. There, to the west, where there should be only the cold snow, industrial solvents beneath the thin layer of topsoil trucked in and grassed over, and the restless damp of the sound, the sharp tang of woman, of beast. I opened my eyes, let blood flood the muscles of my shoulders and thighs, and listened. The snow stopped. A breath of wind ruffled my hair. The clouds thinned from iron to mother of pearl, lit from above by moonlight. To the west, the sound shimmered. Eyes unfocused, vision wide to catch motion. I saw the shadow picking its way over the snow. If I closed my eyes, I would hear the lift and delicate step of a doe moving through undergrowth. I moved again, keeping low, east then south. I stopped, coughed deliberately, and felt as much as heard her ears flick and nostrils flare as she tracked my position. Come, I thought, come to me. And she did. She crossed the skyline, and I saw her clearly. Her coat was winter beige, thick and soft, pale as underfur at her throat, and where it folded back as she walked. Her knees bent the wrong way. Her dark boots were not boots. Dear woman. I took off my jacket and dropped it in the snow. I opened my shirt. She stopped, nostrils opening and closing. Her head moved back, her right leg lifted as though to stamp. But there was no herd to signal. She kept coming. She wanted me to run, so I did. I bounded away, moving through trees. They were not big enough to climb. North and east, leaping the concrete wall, running between the looming sculptures, until I was among the cluster of greenery at the corner of the park. She followed. Two hundred years ago, even a hundred, when there were still wolves in the north of this country and big cats in the south, she would have been more careful. But she had been playing predator, not prey, for too long. No doubt she had lost count of nights like this, the victims whose fear for a while overwhelmed their attraction. She would take her time, not risk her legs on those walls. She was still sleek with Maria, and this was the height of her yearly right not to be rushed. The sky was almost white now. Against it, bare twigs stood out like black lace. I couldn't see the water from here, but I could smell it. It softened the air, utterly unlike the arid cold of Korea, coarse as salt. Korea, where it was rumored that the Amur leopard was back in the DMZ. The snow crunched, closer, so much closer than I expected. I'd been careless, too. She was not a buffalo calf. Moonlight spilled through the cloud and splashed like milk onto the snow, and I saw the darker line in the gray-blue shadow of the steel sculpture. Onsa, it said. Come to me. Recklessness burst in me, brilliant as a star. I stood and left the safety of the trees. Moon shadow is steep and sharp. The tracks I made looked like craters. Her scent ripened, rich and round against the keen night air. I swallowed. I can't see you. My voice was ragged, my breath fast. She stepped from the shadow. I moved closer, closer still, until I could see the pulsing ribbon of artery along her neck, the snowflake on a thread of her hair. Strong hair, brown-black. Kneel, she said. She wanted me beneath her in the snow. 
She would fold down on me and crush the breath from my lungs until my heart stopped, and she could lap me up and run, run through the trees, safe, strong for another year. No, I said. She went very still. I regarded her. After a moment, I stepped to one side so she could see my tracks. She took a step backward. It wouldn't be enough. It would never have been enough, even in the long ago. Who are you? Onsa, my newest name, Panthera Onsa. Vialam before that. And long, long ago, Viima. She didn't understand. I'd been a myth before she was born. I waited. She looked at the tracks again, a half moon in four circles. Unmistakable. She shot away, all deer now, straight for the trees lining Western Avenue. They always go for the trees. In the DMZ, the water buffalo had been heavier and horned, but only a buffalo, nothing like my equal. Deer woman ran like a rumor, like the wind, but I was made for this, and though I hadn't hunted one of my kind for an age, had thought I had taken the last a lifetime ago, she had never run from one like me. I was older, much older, and at short range, cats are faster than deer. I brought her down with one swipe to the legs, and she tumbled into the snow. She panted, tail flickering. Her hind legs tightened as she prepared to scramble up and run again. I stood over her. I could take her throat in my jaws and suffocate her until she was a heartbeat from death, then rip her open and swallow her heart as it struggled to beat, feel its muscular contraction inside me. The lungs next, rich with blood, slippery and dense. Then the shoulders. But she didn't move. And I didn't move, and she was a woman again. Why? Her hoarse voice seemed more human now. She didn't know why she was still alive. I didn't either. Cold Wind. That was my first name before people crossed the land bridge and I followed. Or perhaps I crossed and they followed, I forget. You think you're old. I looked at the steel sculpture, huge, undeniable, but rust would eat it as surely as leaves fall in winter and dawn breaks the night open and spills light afresh on the world, and I would still be here, alone. I had killed them all, because that was what I did. Get up, I said. Why? So you can run. Surely she wasn't weary of life, not yet, but she began to lift her jaw to offer her throat. Cats are faster than deer. I would catch her, and as young as she was, she felt it. This is who we were. This is what we did. It was the old way. Run. I won't kill you. Not this year. Silence. But next. Predator and prey. We were the last. I said nothing. And she was gone, running, running. The stars shone bright, but the moon was setting, and more cloud was on its way, ordinary northwest cloud. The night was warming, the silence already thinning, traffic starting up again at the edges. But tomorrow the snow would melt, the cameras would work. But tonight it was still a white world, where dear woman ran toward daybreak, and I had someone to hunger for. Nicola Griffith is the multiple award-winning author of novels such as Hild, Spear, Ammonite, and the forthcoming sequel to Hild, Meanwood. She lives in Seattle with her wife, Kelly Eskridge. 
Mary Rogers is a career performer and storyteller who has acted in plays, musicals, television, and film, and was the lead singer-keyboardist for an all-women's rock band for a number of years. She is also a published novelist and screenwriter with a focus on near-future science fiction, contemporary romance, and fantasy. The Kaleidocast is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Our website is www.kaleidocast.nyc, where you can find links to all our contributors and more content to enjoy. This season's Kaleidocast production team was Brad Parks, founder, CFO, and senior producer. Cameron Roberson, executive producer. Sandra Fink, managing producer. Christopher Lazarick. Managing Editor and Production Manager. Marcus Zong, Story Runner. Anton Vorst, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer, Host. Carlos Luis Delgado, Editor and Sound Engineer. Jason A. Smith, Editor, Sound Engineer, Actor. Sam Schreiber, Senior Producer, Senior Editor, Sound Engineer. Holden Lee, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer. Jason Stack, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer, Technical Officer. Marcy Arlen. Co-founder, associate producer, voice actor, director. Randy Dawn, editor, sound engineer, actor. Eric Rosenfield, chief technical officer. S.J. Penderact, associate editor and producer. I am McGuire, associate editor and producer. Sadie Kleinman, producer. Devancha Segel, associate editor, producer, actor. Katherine Erickson, Associate Editor. And a special thanks to Amachai Green. Our music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 National License. That means you can listen all you like, but don't sell or change it and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors in usage and reference. This episode has been brought to you by our generous Patreon subscribers whose support has meant the world to us. A special thank you to the Patreon subscribers who made this episode possible. Eric and Jessica Schreiber, Sean Elliott, and David Simerly. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and sign up for more exclusive content at patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc.